Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, I hear myself say it all the time. I hear my friends say it all the time. It's this phrase, I just need to unplug. You guys ever say that? I say it all the time. No, I'm the only one, okay. Uh, I just need to unplug. Like, life's hard, life's busy, I'm tired, parenting's hard, marriage is hard, work is hard, singleness is hard, friends are hard, church is hard, life's hard, Christmas is hard, Thanksgiving is hard, um, right, for, for the moms uh, that cook the food. My wife always gets mad at me because I always say, I love Thanksgiving because you don't have to do anything, you just get to sit around and eat. And she's like, <laughs> really? Really? Well, the guys do, okay. Um, Anyways, life's hard. Like, we just want to unplug. We want to, we wanna, for just a moment, sometimes we want to take our hands off the, the oars, off the paddles, and just float. Because if we just want to do that, just want to float. But here's the problem. Life's not a lake. It's a river, right? It's, a, it's not a lake. There, there, it's not something we can just sort of coast through and float through. It's like a river. There's always this constant stream, this constant current pushing at us. Now, whether that's um, the, 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 the day-to-day things of life, I can't just not mow my lawn, I can't just not deal with these bills, or whether that's work stuff, or whether that's our spiritual life, the reality is it's hard to rest because we don't really, we, we know we can't just take our hands off the reins because there's something always sort of pushing us back. It's the problem that we deal with. How do we rest? How do we drift without drifting away? How do we let go of stressful things without being swept away or drifting away? Well, this is kind of the question I think that our text this morning is going to answer specifically about drifting. And here's, here's what the answer is not. The answer is not you just need to row harder which for a lot of us, that's what we tend to do, right? I'm just going to work harder so that I can eventually rest. It also doesn't just say to let go and drift away. It's going to tell us specifically to do a specific thing, and that is to anchor ourselves to something that is immovable. All of us in here need rest, okay? All of us in here are looking for rest. We're looking for, for a chance to just sort of be able to coast for a little while. The answer to that is not to row harder. It's not just to drift away. It's to anchor ourselves to something. It's not to unplug, but it's to replug ourselves into Jesus. So that's kind of the, the thesis of the passage this morning. Let's read the whole thing. It's a short passage. Read the whole thing, and then we'll work our way back through it. Uh, and then this morning, I'm going to give you four ways to drift away in your faith. Okay, in the negative sense. Four ways to drift away from Christ. We'll get there. Let me read the passage. Hebrews chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this is our text this morning. Let's work our way through it quickly, and then we'll kind of come back and make some, some big points at the end. First of all, the, the first word you need to see is the word therefore, okay? And you've probably heard this before, but when you are reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, that word is a, is a link back to the previous logic in the text. 
Now, as we study the book of Hebrews, you're going to hear me say this over and over again, but the author is writing one big thought through the entirety of the book. You know, we chop these books into little verses and chapters, and we chop them up into sermons, and we chop them up into Bible studies, and that's fine because there's a lot to look at. But remember, these letters were meant to be read really in one setting. That's what they would have done. These were circulatory letters. They were written by apostles. They were sent to either a particular church or multiple churches to be read, and then they would be sent off to the next church, and they would read them out loud. So really, if this was first century Christianity, you would probably come in here, and we would actually spend the majority of our time just reading this letter, the entire thing. The reason I say that is because there's a big thought here. There's a big thought being developed through the book of Hebrews. Now, we're going to take 10 months to study this book. And in order for us to, to keep out of the weeds, to not miss the forest for the trees, we're going to have to continue to sort of zoom out and go, what's been said, what's being said, and where's he going? What's the big point? So this word, therefore, is significant in verse 1 because it's reminding us that everything that's been set up to this point is now going to sort of terminate in this imperative that he's going to make. Well, what's been said up to this point? He's been building logic, and here's basically what that logic looks like. He's made the point that God, in verse 1 of chapter 1, that God speaks. God is a speaking God. He is a God who reveals himself. He always has revealed himself, and he's always sent witnesses into this world. God has spoken through many ways and many times, primarily through the prophets. But then the author made the point in chapter 1 that Jesus is the final disclosure of God's personhood and will and plan, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He also prosecuted the point that Jesus is God. He is the divine imprint of God. He is the son of God, meaning he is the inheritor of all things. He is the one God created creation through and for, and all things hold together in him. We've seen these truths and realities. Now, last week, we looked at the rest of chapter one in which the author prosecutes the case that Jesus is superior to what? Angels. Angels. Why? Why is he bringing up angels? Well, in our text this morning, we're reminded that, that the angels were thought to be, and really were, the ones that delivered the old covenant on Mount Sinai. I don't know how that works or what that looked like, but in some way, the angels were responsible for sort of being the mediator or the deliverer of the old covenant. The old covenant is what? The Mosaic covenant, right? The covenant we read about in the book of Exodus, Leviticus. So the angels were responsible for delivering this old covenant, who is responsible for delivering the new covenant? Kids, you can, you can get this one, right? Jesus is responsible for the, if you, if you never know what the answer is, just say Jesus, and there's either you're a heretic or you'll get it right, but the odds are you'll probably get it right, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Jesus is the greater, uh, the greater one, greater than angels who delivered the greater covenant. Now, why is the author taking the time to make this argument about Jesus being superior to angels? Well, our text really is going to answer that today. And the answer is that these Jews that were Christians, these were ethnically Jews that had become Christians, were drifting. They were drifting not sideways, not forward. They were drifting backwards into what? The old covenant. They had really found themselves in a place where Christianity was not only unaccepted, it was persecuted. They found themselves kicked out of the synagogues, kicked out of the temple, sort of um, mocked by their, their, their fellow ethnic Jews, mocked by the Romans. They found themselves in a really uncomfortable place of persecution and tribulation. And they thought to themselves, you know, maybe we can still worship God, Yahweh, and just 
go back to the old way we used to worship, through the feasts and through the temple and through the synagogue. We can go back to the old covenant. So the pastor writing the book of Hebrews is trying to stop these guys from drifting backwards into Judaism. He's trying to stop them by saying, you don't understand, there's a greater covenant now that's been mediated by the person of Christ who is greater than angels. So that's really all of that, therefore, is to get the author from saying, hey, this is the logic I've built, and now here's the point. So last two weeks were the logic he's built. This week is, here's the point. The writer of Hebrews is now going to take all the stuff he just said, and he's going to put a sharp point on it that is going to actually, uh, actually exhort the audience to action. Okay, and what is the action? Well, look at it again in verse one. Therefore, so because Christ is superior to the angels, because Jesus is the son of God, second person of the Trinity, because Jesus is the final word, because Jesus is the full and final disclosure of God's revelation to all mankind, because of those realities, therefore, listen, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Do you hear the passion and the voice of the author? He's pleading with the audience who's drifting back to this dead, replaced religion, this religion that was meant to get them to Christ. He's saying, don't neglect Christ. He is the greater messenger, the greater revelation, the greater covenant bearer. He is the point. Don't drift back. Pay closer attention. This is what he's pleading with them to do. Pay attention to what? To what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Now, we'll come back to that, but I want to continue on in the thought here and read verse 2. He says, for since the message, what is the message? The message is the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, the declaration that Jesus has, in fact, come, died for our sins, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is returning. For since this message... Declared by angels, pardon me, there he's talking about the old covenant. For since this message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's saying, look at how God dealt with those who rejected the message in the Old Testament. Do you not think that God will also enact just retribution on those who reject the new covenant? Is his logic there? You can jot this down. We're not going to go there. But Hebrews chapter 10, 26 to 31, he uh, expounds on this thought here as well. Now, what is the author talking about here? He's saying, since God was just to bring retribution on those who rejected the old covenant, will he not be just to bring retribution on those who bring the new covenant or those who reject the new covenant. Now, you might go and you might read that and you say, well, he's clearly talking about non-believers here, right? He's clearly talking about non-believers because there's therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that's true, but I just want you to notice a couple of key words, and that is the word us and we. The author is including himself in the danger. He's including himself in the warning. He's saying, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the call is not just for the non-believer, but it's for all to take seriously this great message of salvation, this great gospel message. It's very important, is, is basically the point there. 
Now, how can we know that this salvation message is credible? The author answers here. Continue verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, the message, the gospel, was declared at first by the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard. That is the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to its will. So it's, so, it's as though the author is anticipating uh, people going, okay, but how do I know this great salvation is authentic? How do I know this new message that Christ has delivered? How do I know that it is solid? How do I know that God the Father has really signed off on this? And he's gonna give three answers to that. The first is, he says, because the message is credible, or the message is credible because it was spoken first by the Lord. Spoken first by the Lord, who is the Lord here. It is Jesus, okay? The Lord spoke the gospel. Did you know that? Jesus preached the gospel. He was the first to preach the gospel. You say, well, where did he preach the gospel? I'll show you. Luke chapter four, verse 17. You know this. This is really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's in Capernaum, I believe it is, or he's in... He's in uh, yeah, the, the, the Sea of Capernaum, that sort of that area, that region. He, was, he goes into the synagogue, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This is what they do. They go into the synagogue. They would pull out a scroll. They would read from the scroll. Then they would sit down, and they would give commentary on it. So, so Jesus, this rabbi, he goes into the synagogue. He, at the beginning of his ministry, he, he has this scroll pulled out from Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. This is what he's reading from Isaiah to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You notice those two words there? Good news. That's what gospel means. Gospel is the Greek word euangelion. It means good news. News. Jesus is reading from Isaiah where it talks about this future period where there will be good news, great news. And here's what Jesus says about it. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, the synagogue attendant. He sits down. And rather than giving some commentary like you would typically do, like a teaching, the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, what? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words... I'm not going to give commentary, he says, on this. This is talking about me. This old reference, the future prophecy of good news that is coming, the year of the Lord's favor, it's fulfilled here in Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is reminding us that the gospel was first preached by Jesus. It was first unpacked by, first alluded to, first explained by Jesus, both in his incarnation, that is when he lived for 33 years, and also in his resurrection. Jesus continued to develop the picture of the gospel for the disciples. Remember the road to Emmaus? He's walking with these guys. They don't know who he is. And he begins to explain to them through all of the scriptures how all of the scriptures were pointing to Jesus as the centerpiece. Remember, what's Jesus doing in that moment? He's speaking and communicating the gospel. He's speaking and communicating the gospel. So Jesus was the first to attest it. And then in Hebrews, it says um, that it was also attested to by those who heard. Well, who is that referring to? It's referring to the apostles. It's referring to the first generation, the eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of what Jesus actually said and did. 
Okay, that's why Luke, Dr. Luke, when he wrote his gospel, the book of Luke, he went and he interviewed all of the firsthand witnesses, um, including the apostles, including Mary. They would have still been alive. He went and, and, and interviewed them in order to get their firsthand account of what Jesus did and spoke and taught. Okay, that's why um, our gospels, John and Matthew, are written by apostles. They were those who literally witnessed Jesus in all that he did. And Mark was taken from Peter's firsthand account. So all four gospels are the firsthand witnesses of what Jesus did and taught and of the resurrection. So if you're not following me here, the author's trying to say, okay, here's how you can know that this, new sal- or that this great salvation is authentic. Here's how you can know it's true. First, because Jesus taught it. Pretty good, right? Second, because the apostles witnessed it. Hundreds of them, not just the 12, not just the apostles, but all of the first century witnesses witnessed the resurrection, they witnessed the miracles, and then he's going to give a third reason why we can trust it, and that is because the Father bore witness, God bore witness, how? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the third confirmation we have for this great salvation is that the Father from heaven gave his stamp of approval on the person of Christ and on the apostolic witness. Okay, well, how did he do that? He did it a lot of different ways. He did that, if you remember, when Jesus was, was first conceived. He did that with Mary. He appeared, he sent angels, right? He did that at the baptism of Christ when Jesus popped out of the water and the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and the spirit descended like a dove. He did that through the three-year ministry of Christ when he turned water into wine and when he raised the dead and when he cleansed the leper, everything that the Old Testament said that he would do. Jesus did these miracles not just so that he could heal people, he did them to confirm that he was the full and final message of God. The miracles are what give us credibility, the credibility to Christ's message. You ever wonder why in the book of Acts, the the, the apostles are doing the same exact level of miracles that Jesus is doing? Because the Holy Spirit is also confirming that the apostles are also able to write and speak this message, the message of the gospel. Okay, so when we think about miracles and when we think about the miraculous, God is a miraculous God. God does miracles, God heals, God pours out gifts. I believe there are gifts for the church today, but there was a particular level of outpouring in the day of Jesus and of the day of the apostles that we don't see, at least not around here today. Why? Because God was showing, he was showing that he approved of the messengers. You understand that? Whenever the prophets uh, would need to display that they were truly sent from God, God would often send a miraculous power to confirm the messenger. So Jesus has undebatable power when he heals. He speaks, he commands the power of God to heal because he is the ultimate messenger. The apostles did the same thing. Now, I want you just to see this. The, 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 The power, the salvation is not in the miracle. What is it in? It's in the message. It's in the message, not in the miracle. The miracles are in order to confirm the message. The gospel is not, come here and I'll heal you. The gospel is you need to be saved eternally. Your sins need to be paid for. You need to be accepted and adopted by God. 
Okay, the, the message is what saves, according to Romans. Uh, the, the, the gospel, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power to save. It's the power unto salvation. So the miracles were there to confirm the message along with the gifts. By the way, what was the ultimate proof? What was the ultimate miraculous proof that Jesus truly was the Son of God? The resurrection. The resurrection was the ultimate proof. The burden of proof, evidentially, is not the Lord's, it's ours, is what the author is getting at here. He's saying, he's saying, you cannot deny the message of Christ. Why? Because Jesus was explicit about it, okay? Because the apostles witnessed it and the resurrection, and because the Father confirmed it miraculously through the Spirit of God, through miracles that are undeniable. I'm not talking about, oh, I had back pain and then it went away. No, raising the dead, cleansing the leper, walking on water, Okay, miracles that are undeniable, not in a dark room where nobody can really see what's going on. The people that are actually broken in wheelchairs are stuffed in the back. Okay, we're talking about real miracles, real miracles. There's, there's no denying this. So the burden of proof as to the validity of Christ is ours, not the Lord's. He has given us ample evidence, ample evidence. And you can look more into that on your own. Now, that's the text. So let me just kind of re-summarize. So the, 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 the writer of Hebrews is saying because Jesus is greater than those who delivered the old covenant, we must pay close attention to this great salvation that is now ours in the person, person of Jesus. Lest we what? Lest we, what's the word? Drift. Lest we drift. He's saying do not neglect this great Salvation. That's what we're going to talk about the rest of our time. I want to really double-click on, unpack this idea of drifting. Drifting and neglecting the gospel. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you four ways to drift and shipwreck your faith. So if that's what you want to do this week, if you want to drift away, shipwreck your faith, neglect the gospel, I will give you four precise ways to do that. We're going to call this the dichotomy of the drift, okay? The dichotomy of the drift. So, four ways. Here's number one. First way to drift away and shipwreck your faith is to assume that you don't drift in your faith. It's to assume that you don't drift. You notice the passage does not say that you might drift. It says that if you are not anchored to this message, you will drift. I said it in the beginning, life's not a lake, it's a river, right? It's, it's not this place where we can just sort of paddle around and take it easy when we want. We live in a world that has opposite forces constantly pushing. And I'm not just talking about gravity, which is exhausting also. Any of you guys ever tired of gravity? I, I'm tired of it. Um, we have spiritual forces constantly pushing against us. You understand that you have... Demonic forces that are constantly trying to keep you from loving Jesus, following Jesus, believing in Jesus. You have this old nature that is constantly trying to get you to do anything other than submit and surrender to the Lord. You have these neurological pathways that have been designed and built through years and years of sin patterns that, that are they're like ruts. They're just almost impossible to get out of. You have a world system that is bent on anything but worshiping and glorifying God. The world, the flesh, the devil, it's all against you. You are not floating on a lake. You are trying to swim up a stream with a strong current. And guess what happens when you stop swimming? Do you stay? 
you flow backwards. That's the reality. This is the picture that the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to say. He's saying, look, don't drift away. Don't drift away. And the first way to drift is to assume that you won't. It's to assume that you'll stay right where you were when you left off. Your, your faith does not manage itself. There is an opposite force pushing you the other direction. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity... I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of, out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Have you found that to be true? Have you found that to be true that oftentimes it's not that people leave Christ because somebody just had this really good argument or they like turn on a Richard Dawkins thing and he just talked him out of it. But more often than not, people just sort of slowly but surely, they just start to drift away. There is no autopilot for our faith. There is no set it and leave it. There's no cruise control. Okay, it, it's not a hands-off faith. A hands-off faith is a shipwrecked faith. And the faithfulness of yesterday is not adequate for the struggles and the challenges of tomorrow or today. Just because you, you were strong two years ago, this is, I think, one of the, the greatest failures of, of men as we age and women as we age in the Lord as we start to go, you know, I, I was faithful back then. I'll be faithful tomorrow. Will you? David is the ultimate example of that. Will you be faithful? The current of this world is always carrying us the other way. It's not our nature to grow in grace. It's our nature to drift away from grace into license and into legalism and into com condemnation. So I just want to say that. Number one, you need to understand, if you want to drift and shipwreck your faith, just think that you don't drift. Just think that you can decide for a few weeks to just, you know, I'm not going to really focus on Jesus in a few weeks. I'll be right where I left up. I'll be right where I left off in three weeks. No, you won't. You are growing one of two directions. Amen? You are growing. Now, any of you that would walk with Jesus for a while, you know this to be true. Your faith does not grow on your own. Sam, I thought I was saved by grace, not by works. Oh, you are absolutely right. You are sanctified, however, through much work. I hate to break it to you. You are not saved by works. You cannot earn your salvation, but you are sanctified through much work. So first way to drift and shipwreck your faith is assume you don't drift. The second way, number two, is assume that small incremental decisions hold no bearing on your course. Small incremental decisions hold no bearing on your course. You know, the, the author here decided to use the word drift, he could have said something else. He could have used a different word, but rather the word he chose was drift. And drift carries with it the idea of slow, unnoticed, uncorrected movement. So much so that you are not aware of its presence. The small things. See, our, our eye of concern is often looking for the big failures, the big screw-ups. Don't, don't kill someone. Don't. You know, don't do anything really big. Like, watch out for those big sins, right? Watch out for those big driftings. But in reality, while we're focusing on those, our eye is untrained to notice the little minute changes in our focus. They go unchallenged, right? Now, the course of our life, this is so important, the course of our life is not determined by one or two big decisions, is it? The course of our life is determined by hundreds of thousands of micro decisions that we make 
every single day. And we tend to think that those decisions do not matter that much, but they do. And I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. Uh, if you read your Bible 15 minutes a day for 20 years, okay, 15, that's not very much, 15 minutes a day, first thing you do when you wake up, you read your Bible, 15 minutes a day for 20 years, you will have read 109,500 minutes of Bible. That's 1,825 hours, or here's a better way to put it, you will have read the Bible 30 times. Anybody in here read the Bible 30 times? 30 times? Okay, uh, <laughs> that's crazy. Praise the Lord. Okay, 30 times, 30 times. Now, that's only 15 minutes a day. Now, check this out. I, I Googled this, so you know it's true. Uh, in 2022, the average person in our country, and this isn't just millennials, you know, like, oh, just millennials, this is Gen Z. Like, Gen Z is a lot higher, but this is the average over all ages. In 2022, the average person spent three hours and 15 minutes a day on their smartphone. Three hours and 15 minutes a day. And listen to this. That's 1,423,500 minutes over 20 years. That's a lot of minutes. Or 59,312 hours on your phone. Do you think that that's shaping you in some way? Do you think that's discipling you in some way? Oh, it definitely is. If you read your Bible as much as you got on your smartphone you would read the Bible 988 times in 20 years. Isn't that crazy? I'm like, it's blowing my mind. Three hours and 15 minutes a day, you'd read your Bible. It only takes you 60 hours to read the Bible. 60 hours. Three, I mean, that's insane. 988 times. Now, what's, what's my point? My, my point is, is, is not to condemn you about not reading your Bible in the morning or to stick it off your smartphone. Well, maybe, yeah, that too. But, but my point is that the small decisions really add up, don't they? I mean, they really add up, the little things that we do. And part of drifting is saying, I'm not going to focus on the little things. I'm not going to think about the little things. I'm just going to sort of wake up in the morning and just choose to just jump on my phone instead of reading my Bible. I'm just going to coast through my day and just let this thing sort of happen. And these sins that define us are often, they're not sins of commission. Oftentimes, they're sins of omission. You know the difference? They're not necessarily things that we're choosing to do. They're just things that we're choosing not to do anything about. They're just things that we're letting happen. And we begin to drift away. So, Kent Hughes, he said, the church's experience 2,000 years ago, speaking of the church that the, the author of Hebrews is writing to, the church experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And as the metaphor suggests, it is not so much intentional as from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ and begin to, qualify, uh, begin to quietly drift away. There is no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. You know, one of my concerns about the Western church right now is that we have so emphasized grace in regards to salvation, and we're afraid to emphasize works in regard to sanctification. We're so worried about making anybody feel bad and saying, you gotta work harder at this. You gotta try harder at this because well, that's legalism. No, legalism is when you're working to be saved. It's not legalism when you're working to be mature. We've really gotta work at this thing. It's not gonna happen on its own. You're not gonna wake up in 10 years and be spiritually mature by accident. I guarantee it. You're not gonna wake up in 10 years and be praying more, reading your Bible more, thinking like Jesus more, being kind, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit just by accident. It just doesn't happen. 
It just doesn't happen. We have to be intentional because you're drifting one direction and it's backwards. So either you're, you're swimming or you're drifting. Those are the two directions. And what the enemy wants you to do is he wants to say, yeah, that's fine. You don't, you, maybe you don't fall into these big, giant errors in your life, but just keep doing this one little thing every morning for 20 years, and we'll see how that starts to affect your walk with the Lord. Number three, the third way to drift and shipwreck your faith is to neglect your gospel moorings, your mooring lines, in search of other things. You know what mooring lines are? I think it's what the, the, the writer here is actually trying to picture in his language that's used. This language of drifting, this word is used in other Greek literature to describe boats. I think that this is meant to, to picture for us a boat that has not been tied up correctly or not been anchored correctly. And that's why I think the author is saying you need to pay more attention to this anchor. Now, hear this. The emphasis of the passage is not on what we do, it's on what we hear and how attentively we hear it. See, the, the, the work that Christians need to put in, it's not, it's not just a work of doing things, it's a work of making sure that we hear the right thing so that we will do the right things. We have one job as Christians. Jesus talked about it in John 15. Remember what it was? Abide. Abide in my word. He said, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Believe in me. See, what we do is we start to neglect the gospel and chase after other things. The author here is not saying you just need to do more. He's saying you need to work harder at remembering the gospel. Because here's what we do, guys. We take the gospel for granted. We go, yep, got that. That's kindergarten stuff. Moving on. Got, I got the gospel, I can set that to the side and now I can sort of study other things or do other things or, or learn about other things or talk about other things. This is not the way that the New Testament authors talked about the gospel. They didn't see it as the front door. They saw it as the whole thing. They didn't see the gospel as something that you learn and set aside and move on to deeper things. They saw it as the anchor for all of life. They saw it as something that you needed to constantly come back to, be shaped by, dig deeper into. The Christian life is not, I got the gospel, now I'm going to go learn other things. The, the, the Christian life is I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel because there are layers to this reality of what God has done in our lives. This anchor of the gospel demands our full attention because, listen to me, your sinful nature is not prone to, to it. It takes full attention, and that's what the author here is demanding that we see, full attention to the gospel. It's not a leash, it's a compass and an anchor allowing us to explore all things freely. Let me give you an example of this, okay? Now, there's, there's this temptation for me oftentimes to sort of set this thing to the side and to go learn interesting things elsewhere, and that's fine, and I think we should be able to do that. So I was watching this show, this kind of documentary show. Uh, you're going to laugh at me, but it's about the guy from Thor, you know? I don't remember his name. It doesn't matter. Um, he's the, he's the, 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 the buff guy, you know, from Thor. And uh, it's, it's called Limitless. And it's six episodes, and it's about him uh, trying to figure out how to live longer, right? And I'm, so I'm kind of enraptured in this show, and each episode's about a different thing you could do to make your life better. I'm like, oh, this is good. This is interesting. This is great. Um, and then he gets to the last episode, and it's about how to live long, how, or what it's, what it's like to accept death, what it's like to be an older person and to stare death right in the face. Now, what, what, what I want you to see here is that it's okay to learn stuff like that, but how do we take the gospel with us into that? Well, we take it like a lens, 
We take it like a compass. So, so I go into that show and I go, okay, this is a secular worldview. This is a guy trying to figure out how to make his life better and how to live longer. That's great. That's fine. Who doesn't want to live longer? Who doesn't want to be healthier? That's fine. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the gospel into this and I'm going to apply the gospel to this. I'm not going to sail away from the gospel and go off into this field and go off into that field. I'm going to bring the gospel with me. And I'm going to say, how does the truth, the message of Jesus Christ, how does it actually give clarity to this whole, uh, this whole reality here? These guys on this show are talking about, you know, you just need, you just got this some, some guru on there. She's like, you need to accept death. You just need to accept it. It's, it's just part of life. And I'm going, no, it's not. That's a lie. The gospel tells me that's a lie. How does it tell me it's a lie? Because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus wouldn't have rose from the dead, I'd say, sure, yeah, death's the thing we do because Jesus did it, so we should do it too. But no, Jesus didn't stay in the grave because he came to put death to death. The gospel gives me clarity to understand the things that I would like to learn in this, this show or whatever it is. Are you with me? So my point is not that we need to sort of avoid all other studies other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point is that you need to stay anchored to it. Because it brings the clarity into how we think about the world that we live in. And so where these guys are drifting and where they're tempted to be drifting in the book of Hebrews is that they're saying, yeah, we got the gospel, let's move on to other things. Or let's drift back to this old covenant way of thinking. One commentator said that one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life is losing interest in what is familiar. It are, it's the things that are familiar to us that we often sort of neglect to think about. Yeah, I get it. Jesus loves me, died for my sin. No, you don't get it. You don't get it. You study it all of your life, and you're, you're still not going to fully understand. How could God, who was in perfection, in heaven, in comfort, why would he choose to come down and live in this pigsty of a broken world so that he could die and drink the cup of wrath from his Father for you and I? Why would he do that? Why would he love me? There's nothing lovable about me. Why would he not just let this world go on its own and, and go to hell in a handbasket? Why did he choose to come into it? Why, did he do, why would he love me this way? We don't just get that and move on. It is the thing by which we're anchored to. It's the thing we need to wake up every morning and believe again and again and again. I love it. Jeff Vanderstel, he says, every sin in our life is a failure to believe the gospel. Every struggle that you have to believe wrong, it's you're not believing the gospel. You're not putting the gospel in front of your head, in front of your eyes. When you see the way God loves you, how he loves you, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do, everything begins to come into focus. It is the anchor that we must stay anchored to. It is the moorings that our boat must be tethered to. And guys, listen to me. You have to pay attention to it. Not what you're doing, what you're seeing, what you're believing. And that will change what you do, right? The call of the author here is to pay greater attention to what we have heard, the message. The fourth thing here I'll say, the fourth way you can shipwreck your faith, not only assume you don't drift, not only assume small incremental decisions hold no bearing on your course, not only to neglect the gospel mooring lines in the search of other things, but number four, minimize the danger of the drift. Think it's not a big deal. Think your faith isn't really worth spending a lot of time on. Think your walk with the Lord isn't really that important. If you want to drift away, that's, that's what you do. You just sort of start thinking it's not a big deal. The word that he uses in the text is neglect. 
Okay, we tend to neglect that which we see as unimportant or easily replaceable. There's certain things that I leave out in front of my house in my front yard because I don't really care that much about them. I left the rake out all week. Why? Because I was hoping that when I would see it, I would rake leaves. Didn't work. Um, but I left it out. And I figured, you know, somebody might steal this. And if they do, they got a broken rake that's not worth anything. So I left it out. Big deal, you know. Uh, th there's certain things I don't leave out in front of my house, like my car keys, like my wallet, like my iPad, like my kids. Well, sometimes I do, but I watch them. Um, so there's certain things that we value, right? The, the, the thing that the author's trying to get at here is he's saying, don't neglect this message, don't see it as something that's a given. Don't see it as something that's give it or take it or leave it. Don't, don't see it as something that can just sort of sit out in the rain, just sit out in the front and you're not worried about it. See it as this, you notice the words he uses? Great salvation. Do you see your salvation as great? Do you see how valuable the blood of Christ is? We're at a real um, disposition, deficit maybe is the right word, in our culture because we've been told by modernization or by modernism, modernity, and we've been told by moral relativity that sin really isn't that bad, and hell isn't really real, and we can really do whatever we want, and there is no one that's gonna call us to answer for those things. We've been told that by our culture so many times that I think we start to believe it. We've, we've been told for so long, there's no such thing as hell. And sin's, sin's just relative, it's a cultural construct. Sin's different in different cultures, so therefore it's just nothing. You've been sold that every day for the entirety of your entire life. And so for that reason, when we think about this idea that Jesus has actually paid for our sins and given us his righteousness, do we see that as great? Or do we just see that as going, oh, sure, cool, that's fine. The author is trying to get us to see here that this salvation that you possess, that you have by faith in Christ, is so valuable. It is a great salvation. And we ought not to neglect to hear it, to remember it, to believe it, to live in light of it, to put it before our eyes, to put it before our ears, to stick it into our hearts all day, every day. It's what you guys need. It's the diet of the Christian, God's word, the diet of the believer, the diet of the Christian is to constantly put this message before our eyes, before our ears. And if you're not, you will drift. And something else will fill that place. You will tether yourself to something else. Let me just try to get really specific. Sam, what are you saying? You're saying I'm supposed to tether myself to the gospel? What does that mean? Does that mean that I'm only supposed to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again? No. What I'm saying is, what the author here is saying, is that what changes Christians, what transforms Christians, is not knowledge in general, it's not just doing Christian things. It's just not being busy about, about Christian activities. What transforms a Christian, what changes a Christian is by believing to a deeper and deeper and deeper level the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. That single reality should be the thing you orbit around, Christian. It should be the thing that delights you the thing that you wake up thinking about, the thing that you go to sleep thinking about, the thing, that, the thing that you remind others about, the thing that you can't wait to tell someone about, this message, this great salvation. Take your pulse. How do you feel about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you excited about it? We all were, remember? <laughs> you know when you're really excited about the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you totally blow it. 
that's when you go, oh my goodness, God's, God still loves me. Aren't you thankful for those moments in life where you totally blow it? Because it's those moments that bring us back into the gospel clarity. They bring us back into that place where we go, Jesus, you are all that matters. You're the treasure in the field. I found you. Those are the moments where you're overwhelmed that God would love you and not only love you, but adopt you, but not only adopt you, but give you his spirit, and not only give you his spirit, but go make a home for you. Not only make a home for you, but that he would work in and through you every day, that he would give you a new family and a new name and a new purpose, this, this objective of building his kingdom forever. Are you thankful for that? It's a great salvation. We do not treasure what we do not consider. We cannot fall in love with that which we do not know. And we cannot know that which we neglect to think about. So hear not my passion, hear not my plea, hear the plea of the author of Hebrews who, powered by the Holy Spirit, wrote this down for us so that we could hear it this Thanksgiving weekend. Hear the plea of the pastor of the book of Hebrews. Hear the plea of your pastor, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. Hear his plea when he says, hey, wake up. Pay greater attention to this great salvation, this message of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Don't let your passions go unstoked, amen? We've got to think about this. The answer, friends, the answer this week is not to stop rowing. It's not to stop swimming up the stream. It's also not to drift. It is to anchor yourself to the message of Jesus Christ. Every second of every day, that's your job. You're a stick. You just abide in the vine. You just hold on. Continue to remember that message. This is what Jesus was saying. I'll close with this. This is what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what, you notice what Jesus is not saying there? He's not saying, you need to unplug. What is he saying? He's saying, you need to plug into me. You need to put my yoke on. Jesus doesn't say, you need no yoke. You need to be unyoked. <laughs> he says, you need the right yoke. You need to put my yoke on. You need to come back to that place of clarity where you go, Christ, it's all about you. And I trust you. And I love you. And I believe that you're good and that you're kind and that you're working in my life. And my whole life is yours. That tiredness that you feel, that, that anxiety, that stress that you guys are feeling chronically, the answer to that is not unplugging from your problems. The answer is putting on the yoke of Christ. It is tuning back into this great message of salvation and remembering it every second of every day. Amen? I'm gonna invite the, the team back up and we're gonna sing a couple songs, take communion together. During this next song, um, you guys are free to come down and grab the elements. There's some back there. There's some up here. Grab them and then just bring them back to your seat. We'll all take it together at the end of the song. Father, thank you so much for Hebrews, the word that it is to us. God, we thank you for, for strong words like this. And God, I know my, my heart is always just to match the intensity of the passage. And Lord, in this passage, we see you pleading with us to wake up to tune back in, to think about our salvation.
the salvation that you've given to us. So Father, as we take the elements this morning, as we take the cup, we take the bread, I pray this would be a great opportunity for those who believe in this room to really consider where they're at. Lord, for those in this room that are not Christians yet, that are just here curious, just checking things out, kicking the tires, Lord, I pray that you would show them this great salvation, that you would help them not to neglect it any longer. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to move in this room this morning as we remember this great reality, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.